You are listening to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast. They believe strongly in locking you up and throwing away the keys, but life is life. No parole. And um, I was given a 40 year sentence before I could even buy alcohol. So I just really pray, you know, God, if it's meant for me to be in there for the duration of my life, then help me to be an asset towards the outside, help me to give back. I'm your host, Holly Shaw, author, creativity coach, and hypnotherapist, and welcome to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast, helping you to find your edge. Expressing yourself creatively is an act of freedom. It can loosen the hold that your sadness, your grief, your shame can have on you and alchemizes that experience into art, into writing, music, movement, and story. As you heard from listening to Daria Halpern's interview last week, creativity can make space between you and your emotions by revealing other options for relating to those emotions. Creativity is the potential for freedom. And in the case of this story, you're about to hear here today, creativity quite literally freed a man from prison. This is a true story of Glenn Robinson, a.k.a. Wheeze, a man who had a 40-year prison sentence for a nonviolent crime he committed at 18. J.R. First, his pen pal, a poet and provocateur, and Kate White, the artist who brought life to their letters. This is the story of how friendship, wisdom, and creativity became the lifeboat for one man's literal freedom and the mental unshackling of hundreds of others. Meet Glenn Robinson, a.k.a. Wheeze. Wheeze was hustling, stealing, and providing for his family by the age of 12. With a drug-addicted mother and an absent father, he had grown up in a part of New Orleans in which a black boy could be sure that, by the age of 21, he would be either dead or in prison. True to that expectation, Glenn had fallen into gang life, crime, and eventually prison. But I was I was taught to think and act a certain way in my living room coming up in the um, black community. You know, my mom's on drugs. Pops was an um, alcoholic, womanizer, was a cool cat, but, you know, emotionally and spiritually, um, that wasn't him. And it came from the fact that it wasn't bestowed upon him from his father, because his father was pretty much absentee. And so it was just a repeated cycle. And with my mother, it was the same thing with, with her father. And her mom did what she could. And so it was just a bunch of... um. Um, how could I say it? Um, a bunch of gaps within their teachings of uh, on, on, on us, and it's probably a common thing that goes on in the black community. I can't speak for any other community. I can't. I'm black. I can't speak for any other community. But yeah. my community, my where I was raised at, it was a bunch of traditional stigmatizations that took place. You know, and it, it was nothing that was um, solely um, done on purpose. No, because the purpose can only institute, and you would they know. And so it was just generational curses that was passed on from generation to generation. And it wind up taking a toll on me at an early age because I automatically thought that when a man not there, 
the boy is supposed to automatically take the reins, and that's not right. That's not cool. And that's the way I was taught that you got to man up, you got to do what you got to do. And my innocence was was automatically raped. And I'm not speaking on sexuality rape. No, I mean mental and spiritual and morality-wise, you know, because I didn't get to enjoy my innocence like a lot of other kids. I automatically felt like I had to do what I had to do to make sure my sisters and brothers ate. It was six of us, you know, in a house being raised with my mom who was on drugs. And we didn't, and I didn't have nobody to come along and tell me, like, no, continue to be a kid. Do what you need to do as a kid. Don't worry about making sure they got a meal on the table. Worry about learning how to tie your shoes. I didn't have that. You know, it was automatically go mode. Do what you, do what you got to do. You know, and before I was to let my sisters or brother sacrifice themselves for being out on the streets, I automatically just felt that innate ability to do what I needed to do. If anybody going to sacrifice, it's going to be me. And I didn't have nobody to yank me by the collar and let me know, like, hey, no, 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 it's not your responsibility. It's not your responsibility, you know? And that's a common thing that goes on in a, in a, in a broken struggle, you know, generational curses that's passed on and passed on every day. And I didn't realize that I was caught up in the midst of a generational curse until I was sitting in court with... Um, the DA and the judge filing for a multi-bill on me as a teenager. An act that gets filed on career criminals when they're like 45, 50 years old when they live their life. And I had that act filed on me before I was even able to buy a pack of cigarettes. So in some of your letters on the Beyond This Prison um you know, website, I was looking at some of the letters that you wrote and that have been posted there. And you mentioned feeling for many years, like bitter and angry that you were in prison. And then at some point, something changed. What, what it was it? What, what was it? What did it take to change the way you saw things? When did you Mm -hmm. begin to see things in a new light? I began to see things in a new light, like in my early twenties. Maybe about twenty, about twenty-four, specifically. One day when I was on when I was on in Angola State Prison, Louisiana State Penitentiary, the mecca of all prisons in America, was once labeled the bloodiest prison in America, in the world. Um, I happened to be in a field one day, down this long field. Um, can't remember what I was doing in the field, what the work, what the, my work duty was, but I know I was in the field, and um, I was just thinking, like, wow, you know, I was looking around me at all these guys around me, and all these acres and acres and acres of land around me, and just looking, you know, looking at everybody, like, damn, this, you know, it seemed like some slave stuff, you know what I'm saying? And then it hit me like a ton of bricks that this prison was once a slave plantation. And so, you know, it felt like my heart fell in my shoes. I was like, damn, like, man, how the fuck I went from getting regular weapons and punished to just straight jumping to the penitentiary, you know? And I was just trying to think on, like, you know, where I went wrong at, what could have happened? You know, and I was, and I was, I was angry, 
You know, and I, I don't know if I had tears in my eyes thinking about that, if I was really emotional, but I know I was real angry. And later on that, that night while laying in the bed, I was just like, man, I know, you know, this can't, it can't, it can't end like this. This can't be the, the end of my life. This can't end like this. This can't end like this. You know, and, and it was like a, a moment for me to, know, to, to just, hey, what you going to do? What you going to do? What you going to do? You don't want it to end like this. What you going to do? You know, and and from now on out, I wouldn't say that, you know, it was a, a change overnight. But that planted the, planted the seed of change to begin to look at myself differently, look at life differently. I just want to want to do more and be more than where I had came from, more than how people saw me as just, you know, uh, this young menace that, this, that didn't deserve to be on the streets. This young kid who nobody, you know, really cared about, except for maybe a few. I didn't want to be that that person anymore. And I just thought, man, you got to get it together. You got to do something. And from there, I just began to, like, you know, go into myself and working on myself and working on change, you know, yeah. change it for the better. And at what point did you start having pen pals and writing letters? Um, that came, like, years later. That came, like, probably about... Um, 2012. In a moment, you'll get to meet the man who was to become Weeze's pen pal, poet and provocateur J.R. First, when we come back. Hey, this is Holly. Do you love the Performers and Creators Lab podcast? Then you should subscribe to it on iTunes. Subscribing is free and it's as easy as clicking a button. And it means that new episodes will download automatically to your library and you never even have to miss one. And while you're there, why don't you just leave us a review? Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast. Meet J.R. First, the man who was to become Weeze's pen pal. J.R. spent much of his life searching for ways to move beyond deeply ingrained feelings of fear, inauthenticity, and other internal barriers. He found relief from this in his creative expression. His method of choice? Writing letters. Growing up in my household, there was not a lot of encouragement around authentic expression. Or not even authentic expression, but on understanding my experience as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was never, it never really seemed to matter what I was feeling, what I was thinking, what I wanted, who I was. Um, mostly in my household, you know, the things that were valued were behaving and sort of staying in line and um, being a, a presentable extension of my parents. And I, I'm not trying to bash them, uh, but that's just sort of the way it was. They were just the culture that we grew up in, they, they're, what was important to them is that we were, you know, taken care of, and that we were behaved. <laughs> um, but I have sort of a, 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 a creative spirit, and I had a lot of energy inside of me that, that wasn't getting invited into the world, and in some cases was being tamped down or discouraged yeah. or, or suppressed in some way. Um, and so I, I sort of developed, to a certain extent, a, a schism with inside of myself. Like I had one self that that stayed inside and that basically talked to itself all day and another self that I learned to sort of adapt to the world, like how I show up in the world, the different facial expressions that I might do when relating to people, the different things that I permit myself to say. And 
um, I sort of just lived with that and didn't even know that that, that that sort of dichotomy existed for a long time. But then as I started to go through puberty and my body started to change and all these sort of, I could just, you know, feel different energies coursing through me and, and just my, my sense of self became more intense. Like just the experience of being human was just more intense. Like I could feel my body changing and that, that schism became more apparent. Like it created more, more, um, I guess more of a, a consistent sense of tension. And so it got to the point where probably around the age of 13, 14 years old, I just felt like completely uncomfortable in my skin. Um, like anything I said, any interaction I had, any facial expression I made, uh, felt like I was just watching myself in a very uncomfortable way. Like very little, if probably no connection between the little voice inside my head, a little, the little person looking out and what was happening on the outside. And... And um, that was that was painful, and, it, and, it, and I just lived with that tension in an ongoing fashion. And I think probably around the age of fourteen, I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol, just casually, not a lot, but and it, it shook me up a little bit. It sort of loosened some things up, and some of that part that was getting repressed or held in, or or um, told that it couldn't come out, started to sort of rear its head a little bit. And, but still, I just, like, I just walked through the world with angst, mm. like 24 hours a day, seven days a week, <laughs> like, yeah. even in my dreams. Um, and one day that angst just sort of exploded. <laughs> and basically, I think around the age of 14, 15, I started to have some really uncomfortable experiences where, where I would just feel really deeply disembodied <laughs> mm-hmm. and to the point where I couldn't ignore it. I think. Prior to that, I just been able to ignore it or or compartmentalize. You know, I just I knew I had a good, like I said, a good persona in the world. I could just sort of laugh things off or tell a joke or be friendly or whatever it was. And it got to the point where I couldn't ignore it anymore. Like it was just it was like surging out of my skin. Started to. Wow. And so then there's one particular night, the one you're referring to, um, where I felt just like really uncomfortable just like my brain was spinning at like 100 miles an hour just like just this propulsion (laughs) and uh and my body just felt uncomfortable like every muscle in my body was just sort of twitching and um and I'd never really I mean I think I'd messed around a tiny bit with writing just like jotted down a few things here like I started to have a little bit of interest in writing but I'd never really wrote before and in in the midst of this experience um for some reason, I just sort of my like in in this sort of crazy deranged space, my body just sort of flung itself to the computer. I didn't. I wasn't a conscious decision. Like I'm gonna write now. Like I was almost like I was in a trance, or like I had like a demon inside of me. Wow. And so then I find myself at the computer, and like I said, I'd never written before really. And all of a sudden, just like these thoughts just sort of pouring out of my head, and and. Um, the way, I, the way I've written about it and the way it actually was is like just I, I couldn't move my fingers fast enough. They were just like sprinting across the keys for, for an hour straight. Just like. Wow. Um, and and it was the first time I, I ever felt like um, a sense of being alive, really, or a deliverance in it. Like from that, that angst that I've been talking about, I'd never at all felt that coherent as a human being. And, and nothing else in my life had ever compared it to that and so from that point forward 
especially when I was younger and I was trying to make sense of all it because I woke up the next morning and I was pretty much back to how I'd been <laughs> and it was a little bit difficult to integrate that or like what the what the fuck I don't know I swear on this thing yeah you can swear on this thing <laughs> like like what the fuck was that yeah and how do I do it again <laughs> and I had no idea how to do it again I sat I probably the next day probably sat down at the computer and like okay like let's try this and nothing came out or maybe a few words came out but I could not consciously recreate what had happened. It was it was an unconscious process that emerged to the surface, and it was frustrating and scary and upsetting. And like I, I mean, I, I probably I don't remember the specific um, sequence of events, but I assume that I, you know, every day probably tried to get back into that space because it, it, like I said, nothing else compared to that. And usually I'd been suffering so much, and it was like just this slight moment of eclipsing the suffering. You know, I went through that period where I was a sports poet performing poetry on uh, KMBR, the, right. the sports station. And that actually was born from a period in my life where I, I decided that I like I wasn't going to write and I wasn't going to um, follow sports anymore. That I, I thought that that was sort of like a sickness or a disease, like I said. And I, I needed to like get a real job and like grow up for once. This was probably, I don't know, like, what was it, 2009 or so. And so I would go to the library, I didn't have a computer at home, and just search for for jobs on Craigslist and it was so dreadful and I hated it and it was like <laughs> but I was like I was determined to like be be an adult and be responsible but then at the end of the couple hours of looking for jobs I would just have this extra energy left and even though I wasn't really following sports I, I would just send these emails to uh, different sports hosts I didn't, I didn't know why and then that that evolved into getting a gig on a major San Francisco radio station so yeah, it comes out one way or another. That's sort of my experience of it. JR's writing always seemed to find a way to create opportunities and adventures for him. And one day, it led him to a website that matched prisoners with willing pen pals. This is how he began writing Wheeze. At that point, a young man with 35 more years of incarceration ahead of him. I didn't really know why I was writing to incarcerated folks. Uh, and I didn't know what to expect. I didn't even know if I'd get a letter back. And so, like, I'm, I mean, I've told this story before that, like, the first time I reached into my mailbox and got a letter back, like, I felt this profound sense of, like, wonder. Like, oh, my God, it worked. Like, it felt like I was getting a, a letter from another world. And there was just something very um, almost mesmerizing about it. And with Glenn, when I got his letter back, there was almost this sense of, like, I've been waiting for you. You have to realize, J.R. and Weez's lives couldn't have been more different. Weez is of African-American descent, and J.R. identifies as whitish. Glenn was hustling, stealing, and providing for his family by the age of 12, while J.R. was preparing for his bar mitzvah. Glenn was serving 40 years at Rayburn Correctional Center in Angie, Louisiana, and JR was doing sports poetry on radio and trying to figure out what to do with his life while not doing 40 years. Two men, both in their early 30s, who couldn't have been more different, started corresponding via letters. Like, he, he had this energy, like, and, I, and he, you can even go back and read some of the early letters. I don't think it was the first one, but it's within probably three, four, five, six letters. Um, basically him saying, like, you know, one day people are going to, you know, we're going to be sitting together at a at a sports game, and people can wonder how the hell did like a, a Jewish guy and a black guy get together in this way? And I mean, this is early on. There's how he had this vision. Wow. And you know, some people might have called him crazy because he he had no chance at parole. His parole 
I don't know exactly how all that works, but he had he, he had tried to get out on parole and it didn't work, so he had no chance of parole. And he was supposed to be until 2036 at the at the earliest. It could have been considered highly delusional for him to think like somehow something great was going to come from this. But early on in the letters, he did really speak about that. So that was an element of it that, that captured me. I, I sort of like, I he, he created a sort of a, a landscape for me to step into, this landscape of like belief or faith or, or dreaming. And then pretty early on as well, he, he explicitly asked me to tell a story. And he was, he was very clear about it. Because his vision, you know, another one of the sort of dreams that he was having was that his words and his life story would reach people beyond the confines of the prison. You know, and I just, I just really pray, you know, God, if it's meant for me to be in there for the duration of my life, then help me to be an asset towards the outside. Help me to give back. Help me to, you know, to to do something as far as the recidivism goes, you know, with helping, you know, brothers to stay out and not come back or help me to put up um, blockages for kids not to come this way, you know, because, you know, we're seeing a lot of kids come into the system as teenagers. Like, I began to see, you know, what, you know, because that's the same way I came in when I was young and finally growing and being wise and wise enough and seeing that, seeing those kids come through those doors, it hurt. And you don't, you don't have to, they don't have to be your son or your brother, or your cousin, or your friend for you to feel something. Because once, once everybody's in that dorm, everybody is a kin, no matter what race they are, no matter what side of the tracks they come from, everybody got a number. Everybody is a kin just through that number. Everybody in the same dormitory, everybody on the same bed count through that number. You know, so that put all of us in the same bowl, no matter where you was at prior to prison. And so seeing that, that's just, you know, make me want to just do something about it. Knowing that I, it was most likely that a, a, a higher percentage that I was going to be behind those walls, I want to do what I could to help those that didn't have to be behind those walls. JR began organizing workshops with youth in troubled communities. And that's when their organization Beyond This Prison was born. At each workshop, JR and the kids would read some piece of Weeze's writing and talk about the times when they felt free, about what it means to be free and about the kinds of internal incarceration that they were dealing with. Then they would create artwork to help them process and express their thoughts and feelings. Some of these pieces of art made their way back to Wee's. It was happening. Wee's words of wisdom were reaching beyond the walls of his cell. As he taught, J.R. realized that even though he wasn't physically incarcerated, he'd spent his life dealing with the internal incarceration he felt, and that Weez's teachings were for anyone seeking freedom. And so he began hosting more inclusive events called Unshacklings. This is footage from one of such events. Freedom isn't just about being out there in the world, being unshackled and being able to do what you want to do. It's, it's, it's more than that. Freedom is not having to worry. Freedom is enjoying yourself. Freedom to me is being creative. Freedom isn't only just being creative. 
it's taking your creativity to the max. You know, the sky's the limit. Maybe even space is the limit. Who knows? Being able to realize your mistake and own it. Together, JR and Weeze were doing great things in the world. JR served as the arms to create change through Beyond This Prison that Weeze was unable to do alone from his confined existence. But it would take a third element to lead to the actual freedom from prison that Weeze envisioned. The final catalyst, artist Kate White. Shout out to Kate White. Right? The crazy white girl artist. (laughs) (laughs) When we come back, you'll get to meet Kate White and find out how one trip to prison is the beginning of a turn of events that changes Weeze's life forever. Hey, this is Holly. Doesn't it feel great to learn about yourself? Don't you just love that wonderful satisfaction that you get from discovering the missing puzzle pieces of who you really are and how you really work? Well, so I've created a creative DNA quiz that is going to help you understand who you are as an artist, how you work best creatively, and also illuminate those areas where you could shore up your weaknesses by working with others And it tells you what type of people you should be working with. So there are three main types of creatives, the explorer, the visionary, and the strategist. So visit performersandcreatorslab.com to take the free quiz and discover your creative DNA today. Meet Kate White. She's an artist who's won the Oakland Pros 2x2 Solo Award and the Tornasol Award from the Headland Center for the Arts, a year-long funded residency for a Bay Area painter. Over the last five years, Kate has exhibited work in Denmark, Los Angeles, Atlanta, the Bay Area, with solo shows in San Francisco, Oakland, and Hayward. She's blowing up. And right around the time that she started blowing up is when she met Wheeze. God, this was like when Ferguson was blowing up. And at this point, I had gotten this award at Headlands. And it was the first time really my work was like in that world. So I'm like, you know, dealing with that conversation and questions about my art. Then with, you know, JR and that project and then in my neighborhood situation. So all these conversations about the art are like colliding and contradicting each other. And I was like, I was kind of, my head was spinning. I was like, oh God, what am I doing? And then Ferguson happened and I decided I was just going to go there and meet some people and have like a very personal, like one-on-one experience of what was happening there. It was after, uh, what's his name? The cop got acquitted and and people were protesting and all of that. And, uh, so I went there and then JR was going to go see Glenn in Louisiana. So I tagged that on and we, so I went to Ferguson that's a different story, but then met up with J.R. and Glenn in prison in yeah. Louisiana, met Glenn, spent a few hours with him. He's just like, you know, looking into his eyes. We were like friends immediately. Yeah. And, you know, like you just have a connection with some people right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's real. And, yeah. um, so we came out of that and I was and I was like, OK, now that 
I've met him in person. I'm his friend. Uh, I got to do what I can to help him out because his situation is totally unfair and basically illegal. J.R. First explains more. And right when we uh, left the prison, the time when, I, when, when Kate was there, um, she was super insistent on getting him out. She was, she was actually the catalyst for, for pushing down that road. Previously, for me, I'd just been thinking of it in terms of how powerful it would be to reach all these hundreds of thousands of people, maybe, um, while this, this one man with, with sort of love in his heart, the power of being able to be inside prison and touch so many lives. That was my vision. Um, but Kate was like, no, we got to get him out. Like she, she was really touched by who he was as a person and how uh, how much sort of integrity he had in, in this world that's so filled with uh, craziness. And, and the things that oftentimes, unfortunately, we reward in society are so twisted. <laughs> um, and so she was just feeling the injustice of like this this person, you know, he, he grew up in terrible circumstances. He made mistakes when he was young. Like, this person needs to be out. Like, all he wants to do is help people. Um, so so she said, I mean, very clearly, in no uncertain terms, when we, like, we got to get him out. And so when we got back to, to uh, I almost said Los Angeles, that's strange. I don't, I don't live in Los Angeles. When we got back to the Bay Area, we started calling lawyers. And um, lawyer after lawyer told us, told us that there was no case, that they couldn't do anything like that very definitively there's no case we can't do sorry sorry to hear about your friend we can't do anything so over the next couple of years it took i think maybe a year or two um uh calling around in louisiana trying to find like pro bono lawyers talk to the new judge in his parish who was who told me yeah, what happened to him is not right. If you can get a lawyer to bring his case before the court, I can do something about it. But wow. I can't do anything about it without a court case. Wow. So all he needed was a lawyer because he had a sympathetic judge. That's inspiring. Yeah. And the DA and the judge that had railroaded him into this situation had since been charged with various crimes of corruption. And so it was like, it was a new new people were in charge so there was some hope there was some lawyer who would help people with parole that everybody knew in prison and glenn turned me on to him i talked to him and he was like i can't help him that's different kind of work he doesn't he's not eligible for parole this is post-conviction there's no money in this there's no glory in this no one does this but there's this one family friend young lawyer jane who might help you out. Gave me her number, called her. She was interested. And so she kind of like looked into it, or she needed $2,500 to look into it and see if she could help him. Yeah. So just like put together a GoFundMe, you know, I had already had a painting of JR and Glenn and me from our visit. So people like kind of knew about him, you know, through that because I was showing at this point Uh and um, put together this GoFundMe, got together $2,500 
and within, I don't know how long it took, it, I don't think it was a, even maybe a full year, she had gotten him out for that. Yeah, I, I heard that like once he, once she looked into it, once she did something, it was very, very fast. Yeah. And what, what was the feeling of when you found out, I'm getting out of here? Um, it was a feeling that I can't really, um, um, put into words, to be honest with you. Um, man, um, it was a heavenly feeling, man. Um, probably a feeling that I'll never feel again, once in a lifetime feeling. Um, it, it felt like, it felt like I had been pulling a truck, uh, attempting to pull a truck with a shoestring, with the shoestring being embedded into my hand where I could never take that shoestring out of my hand. I was stuck with that load forever. I'm trying to pull this, pull this truck with a shoestring tied in my hand like a nail. You know, that's what it felt like trying to pull that. And when I found that I was free, it was like that shoestring had just popped. I feel like it just automatically popped. You know, and, and my hand was able to just go down towards my side where it belonged at instead of being held up over my shoulder. Hmm. Trying to carry that burden. And what, what was, I mean, I have to ask. It feels kind of like a silly question, but for someone who hasn't been in prison, it's the first question I thought of, which is, what was it like? Like, what did you... What was the first thing you wanted to do? First thing I wanted to do when I came home? Yeah. Um, eat me some vegetables and fish. Really? Eat me some steamed vegetables and fish with some butter on them, like topping sauce. With a, with a, uh, uh, a real water. With a real bottle of water. That's what wow. I wanted. That's all I wanted. And, and, to see, um, and to see my Aunt Loretta, who's like a mother to me. To see her, who's like a mother to me, who... Um, Really, only the only person that ever really been a mother to me outside of my grandmother, God bless her soul, and my um, biological mother, God bless her soul, who took a chance on me um, when I was younger when nobody else wanted to take a chance on me. Everybody else felt like he won't get it right, he won't get it right. And she always did believe me, and she used to always tell me, um, You remind me of Tupac. You're so smart, but you just got caught up at an early age. You just had a bad break Mm. at an early age, but you're going to get it right. And she never gave up hope on me, never gave up faith in me. She was always there for me. So just relax. You're doing great. Thanks. Here we go. Ready? Close your eye. Inheritance. Inheritance. Wow, man. Oh, man, that's a strong word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Damn. <sighs> Inheritance. I inherited. I inherited my mom's strength and go get his spirit. But I also inherited her a weakness that she
she fought with for a long time and used to always, every time she got back on her feet off drugs, she always wound up falling back on her face because she always lived to please people to make sure everybody was all right. And in turn, she never really got that back. And in turn, from that, it always messed us up because she always wound up turning back to drugs and the whole life. All right, prison. Prison, bars, bottles, broken glass, cement, dripping water, knuckles, bones, rib, cage, heart. Leaking. That's the end. I must say about probably my early twenties, twenty two, twenty three, towards twenty twenty five or something like that. I began to um write poetry and rap and stuff like that. But I was, I got away from the rap because we both know nobody's coming to rescue a rapper from prison. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a boxer or author or something like that, yeah. But a rapper, no. Let's just keep it real. Let's just get, you're going to be all the way real. And so I switched it. He has a real freedom that um, comes from being really powerless over the circumstances of your life. You know, people who have a lot of control over their lives, that privilege to have that kind of way of controlling their lives. Yeah. Um, can become trapped by that because they think they can just adjust this or like get this diet right or this exercise program right, then they'll feel better and they're missing the actual way to freedom, you know, which is like self-acceptance and self-knowledge. No, mental mental slavery is the worst form of slavery. Yeah. Mental slavery is the worst because that's the one that you can't see. And if you, you can't see, how if you can't see it, then how can you know it's coming? How can you protect it? How can you do, do anything about it? Because you don't know that it exists. You guys raised more money to get him a ticket here to Oakland where he has a family to stay with, where he has a job, a job was waiting for him, and he's free. I know it's hard to describe that, but like, how did that feel to accomplish that? Um... It was surreal, and so the fact that that that, that that's what transpired from from me just trying to work out my own angst—that's basically <laughs> the reality of it. Uh, definitely was meaningful to me and, and moved me. Future, <clears throat> future, just being able to live a sustainable life. You know, don't need to be rich. Don't need a Maserati. Don't need ten different women. All this stuff. I just need, just, just. You know, long as I have some kids to make smile, a nice lady to make smile, eat a happy meal, nice home, and able to, you know, just do what's right and contribute to society. I'm good with that in my future. And just, you know, just giving back to the community. You know, just giving back to the community. You know, what what I know how to do best, you know, speak and write and, you know, do what I do. That's what comes to mind when I think about the future. Hey, love that. (laughs) Love that. And the good news is that Weez is out there in community. He is working and speaking, and I just saw a video of him speaking and doing poetry 
or Flowetry, as he called it, at the Fillmore Heritage Center. So you can follow Wheeze on Instagram if you'd like at Beyond This Prison. You can also find both JR and Wheeze and find out more about their organization, workshops, and offerings by visiting beyondthisprison.com. Kate White, the artist, has a show coming up. Not to be missed. February 23rd is the opening, but she is being secretive with me about all the details. But suffice to say, uh, you it's in San Francisco. You can visit katewhite.com to learn more. All the music in this show was composed by Dan Cantrell. I'd like to thank Dan, as well as my producers, Robert Cholino and Q Fortier. And thank you for listening to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast. Be free, be love, and be well, my friend. My name is Holly Shaw. spinning upside down and the road reversing the rivers flowing upward to the glaciers there's a frozen corpse at the North Pole with the answers. <laughs> you can open your eyes. You're fucking fantastic at that. Give me five. Damn, you should kind of just do this, you know? Can you get paid for that? I know. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs>